Let's take our Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I have to tell you a couple things before I preach this morning. First of all, I changed the title of my sermon. Uh, I mentioned that to Tammy this morning, and she said, well, imagine that. Uh, it seems to happen every once in a while. But uh, I did. We're in the same passage, but the title of the sermon and the message is not, not what we're going to use today. I want to speak to you on the topic of whence all the fighting. Whence all the fighting. And then the other thing I want to tell you is that we have a new PA system this morning, and uh, Ray and others have been working hard to make that thing work, and uh, they assured me that they would make me sound like James Earl Jones this morning. So, is that happening? Ray? All right. James chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse number 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain... The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. Precious God, we're so thankful for your word. And we approach this this morning knowing it is your word. I pray, Father, this morning that you would help me to treat it as such. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. Uh, Help me to be protected from saying anything I ought not. And and, uh, bold to say anything I should. I pray, Father, that all of us would have ears to hear today. That you'd help us to listen to this as the word of God, not the words of a man. Uh, Whether that be James or me preaching it, I pray, Father, we'd recognize that uh, this is your word, that you are speaking today, and I pray you would indeed speak to the hearts of each one here. Uh, Whatever needs might be, I pray you'd meet them. Whatever decisions need to be made, help us to make them. Give us ears to hear and uh, determination to do that which is right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James asks a truly timely question, don't you think, in verse number one, when he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? I mean, isn't that a question that we ask from time to time? Whence all the fighting? Why do we, as Christians, fight? Now, first of all, I have to throw out a disclaimer. I'm not preaching this sermon this morning because of any, any perceived issue with this in this church. So don't think that. Don't go out of here and say, oh, there goes that church. They're fighting like Christians always do. Don't do that. We are here only because we are systematically working our way through the book of James, and it is the will of God that we have reached this particular chapter today. It is interesting, though, isn't it? The Holy Spirit knows all things, and the Holy Spirit has chosen this topic for this morning. So we do need to listen. So we look at that question again. Where do wars and fights come from? Among you, whence all the fighting? Now, it's important for us to to try to figure out exactly what the question is. 
before we even attempt to answer it. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is James really talking about here? What kinds of fights, what kinds of war is he talking about here? Is he, for example, describing the problem of conflicts within the local church? We learned way back in James chapter 1, in the very first verse, that he was, his audience was Christians spread abroad. The twelve tribes which were scattered. Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout the region during the various persecutions of that time. So he's writing to Christians collectively. He's writing to the church or churches. So perhaps that's what he's talking about. Or was he talking about the internal battle that takes place within the human heart? Is this a discussion that pertains to church life? Or is it a discussion that talks about eternal life? Is he talking about the lost human condition and the saved human condition? Or is he talking about a dysfunctional church body as opposed to a functioning church body? Could he be talking about churches? Do churches ever fight? Have we ever heard of such a thing as that? I came across a very sad news article this past week, and I've, I've doctored it up here. I took all the names out and things like that, because who knows whether you knew any of these people. It wasn't from around here, but nonetheless... Let me just read the article. It said a man was arrested Sunday following a violent row at a church that reportedly started over seat saving. According to the news article, this man, who was a regular at the church, sat in a section of pews being reserved by a family who does not usually attend. There were some seats that were allegedly saved, said the sheriff, and there was a disagreement over whether they were saved or not. And this continued to escalate throughout the day. Police said the argument spilled out into the church's parking lot and became physical. Punches were thrown. And after one man returned from cleaning himself up, the other allegedly struck him with his car. The bishop of the church told the radio station that about 400 people were gathered for a missionary farewell and a baby blessing. Many of the faces in the crowd were therefore unfamiliar as a result. So much for loving thy neighbor. The bishop called the incident a teaching moment. The man might learn the hard way that lame as it is to save seats, it's not worth felony aggravated assault charges. If convicted, he could face up to five years in prison and a $5,000 fine. Churches? Could James possibly be talking about churches? Do we ever have fights that take place in churches? Sadly, yes. Some amazing church splits have occurred over very important things like, oh, I don't know, musical styles, colors of carpeting. Yeah, Connie kind of likes that one. Pews versus chairs. Who has authority? The style of the service, the standards of dress or behavior. Bible translation. We could go down through a whole long litany of things that churches fight over. And if you're like me, you look at everything on that list and you say, that's ridiculous that we would ever consider fighting over a thing like that. This is the church of Jesus Christ. How do we do it? Uh, and yet we do. We know Satan's devices. We are not ignorant of them, the Bible says. We know these things are of the devil, and yet these fights occur in churches. James Earl Jones? It's nothing new. Is it? We studied 1 Corinthians and we learned there that one of the issues in the church of Corinth was their divisiveness, their conflict. It was alive and well. Clear back then, in the very first century. Charles Spurgeon, who 
I quote from a lot, but I just, I just love Charles Spurgeon. He, he talked about it and said that it was alive and well in his 19th century. Listen to this quote. He said, we have known churches where the members can scarcely sit down at the Lord's table without some disagreement. There are people who are always finding fault with the minister, and there are ministers finding fault with the people. There is among them a spirit that lusteth to envy, and where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. We have met people among whom it, we have met with people among whom it would be misery to place ourselves, because we love not war. We love peace and charity. Alas, how continually do we hear accounts of disputings and variants in churches? Oh, beloved, there is too little love in the churches. If Jesus were to come amongst us, might he not say to us, this is my commandment, that you love one another. But how have you kept it when you have been always finding fault with one another? And how ready you have been to turn your sword against your brother. End quote. So our experience certainly tells us, does it not, that if James is here talking about conflict and war and fights that takes place in churches, it would be needed instruction, wouldn't it? It certainly is something that occurs. But it's also true that there is a war that fights and rages within the soul and within the heart of every Christian. Isn't that true? We have an internal conflict within, a war within that the Bible describes over and over. According to the Bible, the believer is at war in three different areas, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We fight those things, always. And isn't it interesting how in the passage we read from James, he described all of those. Look at verse number Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Look at verse number one. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members, the flesh? And verse number seven, so resist the devil and he will flee from you. So all three are mentioned here. The Apostle Paul described the same threefold warfare that every believer engages in. In Ephesians chapter 2, he said, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in, once you in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Over and over we see this war, this internal war, this thing that takes place within us described. Romans chapter 7, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Galatians chapter 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. 1 Peter chapter 2, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. In another place, we're told that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that we are at war with principalities and powers. In another place, we're given armor that we might fight that battle. When Paul came to the end of his life, he said he had kept the faith, he had finished his course, he had fought the fight. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you know this battlefield all too well. You've stood in the very middle of it, you've donned your armor and you've fought you fought the attacks of the world. You've fought the, 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 the pull of the flesh and you've fought the attacks of Satan. So it wouldn't surprise us, would it, if here James is talking about that war, this internal war. And so we're circled right back around. We're asking ourselves the question, which is it? Which is James talking about here? Is he talking about the wars that take place within local churches or is he talking about the war that takes place within us? And the answer is... 
Yes. I think he's talking about both of them. Here's how one commentator just cleared it all up. See if this doesn't clear it up for you. He said, it is uncertain whether the warning is, number one, internal, our fallen nature, or number two, external, a problem in the church, or number three, both. Does that help? In other words, he has no idea. Well, I think the guy is talking, I think James is talking about both. And I think even more to the point, I think he's talking about one being the cause of the other. Are we still feeding back in here, by the way? We're still feeding back, guys. Feeding back. Knock it off. (laughs) Poor guys are working like fiends back there. One is the cause of the other. I believe that what James is teaching here is that external conflict, the sort that tear up churches and cause all kinds of conflicts in our relationships with others, are really caused by internal conflict, which takes place within the heart of the believer. The internal war that's taking place in each one of us is what causes the conflict outside. Where do wars and fights come from among you? So if we can fix the internal, we can also minimize the external battles. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to tackle the ten verses that we read by breaking it up into three different sections. I want to talk, first of all, about conflict, its causes. I want to talk, secondly, about conflict, its cure. And then I want to talk about absence of conflict, what it looks like. And we're not going to have time to get to all of those today. We'll probably just concentrate on the first one today, and then, Lord willing, if we're not in heaven next week, we'll talk about it next Lord's Day on those other two. But let's look at that first one this morning. And we're going to get all of that from verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4, conflict, its causes. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come? And he goes on in those four verses to list where these things come from. What is the cause? I see four causes here. I see number one, selfishness, number two, prayerlessness, number three, wrong motives, and number four, divided loyalty. Let's notice those four. First of all, selfishness. Verse one, whence all the fighting? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Selfishness is the root cause of this battle, this battle that rages within us. It rages within us internally, and it explodes all around us to cause conflict in our churches. And in every relationship we have, selfishness. James says here that we need to look first within and not be looking without. Whenever we see battles, we tend to want to look all around us. No, James says look right in here. That's the place that you need to look. He speaks of here your desires and your members, referring to the need for us to look in. Some people take that your members to mean members of the local church. I don't think that's the case. I think that he's referring here to the members of the body, the flesh. That's the way Paul used that same terminology in Romans chapter 6. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So I think it's talking about us, our flesh, our body, ourselves. One man said... No doubt the problem is with you. And that, I think, is what James is saying. And I don't exclude myself from that. The problem is just as much with me as it is with you. I I can relate to D.L. Moody, who said one time, I have had more trouble with myself than any other man I've ever met. And we all would do well to think about that. Warren Wiersbe said, many a church or family problem would be solved if people would only look into their own hearts and see the battles raging there. 
If we go a little bit further, we see James in verse number 3. And James there describes our pleasures as being one of the motivating forces. And he uses an interesting word there. That word pleasures is from the Greek word hedonin. Not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but hedonin. We get our word hedonism from it. And hedonism is the philosophy that pleasure is the goal of life. And it's simply another way of describing selfishness, isn't it? Our driving motivation. Selfishness. Our own pleasures. Selfishness is at the root of all sin. Eve was driven by selfishness when she took of the fruit. And because she wanted to be wise like God. Achan brought defeat upon not only himself but all of Israel. Because he selfishly took some forbidden loot when they when they attacked Jericho in Joshua chapter 7. And then in the very next battle, when they went against Ai, people died. And people were, their lives were affected very negatively because of Achan's selfishness. We read it this morning during our communion. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Selfishness. Now let's stop and remember who James is talking to here. He's not talking to lost people. He's talking to us. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. He's describing a condition which takes place in the heart of a believer and one which we need to therefore recognize and resist. Selfishness is at the core of all the battles that rage in our hearts. And it's what spills over into our churches and causes conflict there as well. We're going to talk about the solution a little bit later. We're going to talk about it even more next week. But for now, let's just recognize The primary answer. This is the primary answer that James gives to his question. Whence all the fighting? Where do all these wars and fights come from? Well, the primary answer is selfishness. And we need to be on guard against it. And we need to be on a lookout for it. And we need to be ready to root it out the very minute we find it anywhere. But it's not the only answer James gives to that question, is it? He also gives another one in verse number 3. And that's prayerlessness. Where does all the fighting come from? Verse number three, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Prayerlessness. In 1 Kings chapter 15, we learn of a fellow by the name of Asa. Asa was one of the kings of Judah. He actually was one of the good kings. Uh, Most of the kings, if not all the kings of Judah were good, but Asa was, was a good king. In 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 11, we read that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And so he was a righteous king. But if we keep reading a little bit, there's some interesting details about Asa. Asa, when he got older, was diseased in his feet, the Bible says, and died. And some people have conjectured that that disease was diabetes, but we don't know. Whatever he had, he was diseased in his feet and he died. And we think, well, that's interesting. Well, if you go over to the parallel passage in Chronicles, there's a little tiny tidbit that's told about Asa that really kind of casts him a different light on it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, it says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet, in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And so Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness causes so many of our problems. In so many of our wars. Oh, there's so many other examples. How about the example of Joshua and his dealings with the Gibeonites? You remember that story? Joshua was supposed to be overtaking the land and wiping all these people out and just cleaning out the land. And uh, one day the Gibeonites came walking up and they faked him out. Remember that story? Let me read a little bit of it to you. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. 
And they went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. In reality, they'd come from the other side of the hill, but they had come from a far country, they said. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. That's not what he was supposed to do. But prayerlessness causes so many problems. If only we Christians would pray. If only we would pray more. So much good comes from prayer. Prayer cures selfishness. Prayer cures worry. Luther said, pray and let God worry. Prayer solves problems. It resolves conflicts. Spurgeon said on his knees, the believer is invincible. A.C. Dixon said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. Battles within can be cured by prayer. And all, if we can cure the battle within, the battles without fade away. I've been reading a book by John Piper lately. It's one of those books that I started off thinking I didn't like it. And as I've got into it, I thought it's one of the best books I've ever read. But uh, he says some wonderful things in there on a chapter on prayer. He said, our prayers will bring the kingdom. You can never waste a prayer. Oh, that we would remember that. He said, nothing exalts him more than the collapse of self-reliance, which issues in passionate prayer for help. Psalm chapter 50 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Prayer is the translation into a thousand different words of a single sentence. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Whence all the fighting? Where's all the fighting come from? James says you don't have because you don't ask. Prayerlessness. May God forgive us for it. May he deliver us from it. Oh, but wait, James is not done. There's a third thing he mentions here, also in verse number three, and that's wrong motives. Wrong motives. Do you see that? You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. I think James is circling back here. I think he's going back now and touching on something he just mentioned a minute ago. I think he's revisiting what he said in the first point because isn't he again describing selfishness? We even went to this and looked at that word hedonism a minute ago. Uh, to describe that selfishness. And here, and we saw just a minute ago that prayer cures selfishness. Now he says selfishness breaks prayer. You see that circle? When we do pray, but our prayer is based on wrong motives, we need not expect an answer. There's no need to expect that. Verse number three, he says, you ask amiss. You ask amiss. Depending on what version of the Bible you're holding, it probably says something like, because your motives are wrong. Or you ask with wrong motives. And again, that word there, hedonism, makes it clear that what he's talking about is our own selfish desires. Those are our motives. We often pray that way, don't we? I confess I pray that way. A lot. Too much. On Wednesday evenings, we gather for prayer here. And, oh, I wish more people would join us for that. But we, have a, we have a good time as we pray. You know what we oftentimes pray for? We often pray for the sick. We often pray for the injured. We often pray for those who have needs. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a perfectly valid prayer. We're going to get over to chapter 5 eventually in the book of James, and we're going to see that James says the prayer of faith will save the sick. 
There's nothing wrong with praying for the sick. God, however, always has a purpose and a plan in things like sickness and hurts. Our prayer is always, Lord, heal. That's always our prayer, Lord, heal. And yet maybe that's not God's plan. Maybe our prayer would be better to be, God, your will. Just as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, not my will but thine. There's a little prayer that we've prayed so often here. It's, it's one we've used a lot with our building program. Uh, Lord, your will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's the way we ought to pray. How often our selfish motives creep into our prayers. We're like Bob in the movie, What About Bob? Remember that movie? When Bob cried out, give me, give me, give me, I need, I need, I need. But we don't cry that. We cry, give me, give me, give me, I want, I want, I want. And that's a selfish, wrong motivation. Whence all the fighting, James says, wrong and selfish motives in prayer. I like the way Warren Wiersbe puts it. He says, when our praying is wrong, our whole Christian life is wrong. It has well been said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Thou shalt not covet is the last of God's Ten Commandments, but its violation can make us break all of the other nine. Covetousness can make a person murder, tell lies, dishonor his parents, commit adultery, and in one way or another violate all of God's moral law. Selfish living and selfish praying always leads to war. If there's war on the inside, there will ultimately be war on the outside. One final answer James provides to his question in verse number one. And that's in verse 4, when he describes divided loyalty. Whence all the fighting? Notice what he says. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a strong verse, don't you think? Some strong words, a stern warning. Friendship with the world, enmity with God. Too many of us are not only in this world, and we all must live here, but we're also of it. Too many of us are friends of the world. Too many of us want what the world offers rather than what the Lord offers. If you were to put some Christians in a lineup with a bunch of unbelievers and have some other non-Christian look at them, some Christians you wouldn't be able to tell the difference at all. And so James here warns unfaithful people. Don't you know that to be the world's friend means to be God's enemy? People who want to be the world's friends make themselves God's enemies. Wow. And that warning is all throughout the Bible. That's not just James. Spurgeon one time pointed out, he said, you don't need to defend the Bible. He said, you can go to the Bible for anything. We need not apologize for it. We need not defend it. We need to just use it. He said, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it. And it will defend itself. And so this morning, let's unchain it. I'm not going to say anything else about this friendship with the world. Let's just hear what the Bible says about friendship with the world. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Galatians chapter 1. Do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. John chapter 15. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John chapter 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
First John chapter two, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. I don't think it could be any clearer than that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Romans chapter 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. James says, whence comes all the fighting? What's the source of all this fighting? And he said, it comes from our divided loyalties, from our love of this world, and consequent lack of of love for our God. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. We need to think about it. So many of us laugh off this matter of worldliness. We preachers are told in so many different ways to back off of that kind of stuff and don't talk about that kind of stuff. And yet James here says, James says it's the cause of strife, it's the cause of battles, it's the cause of wars, internal and external. And I think James even goes farther than that. I think James says where this characteristic is present, salvation is probably absent. Do you see that there? One man said, if the pattern of our world, of our lives is worldliness, we have plain evidence that we are deceived about our relationship with God. So let's stop right there today. Next week, if we're not observing the Lord's Day in Heaven, we're going to talk about the next two points, which are conflict, its cure, and the absence of conflict, what it looks like. But you know, I want to share with, with you one little teaser from the next sermon, because I cannot leave you on these points. I cannot leave you on this dark, somber stuff we've talked about today. The Bible is so honest with us, is it not? The Bible, the Bible paints such an accurate picture of our black hearts. Isn't that true? I mean, we see ourselves here. James has done a good job of that. These are harsh words. But the Bible never leaves us there. We're never given bad news in the Word without also being given good news. And so that is true here. I, I, I want you to notice one last verse, and it's verse number six. And I just want you to notice, this is what we'll talk about next week is the cure. But I just want to mention it today in parting. Verse number six, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Consider that wonderful phrase. More grace. Grace upon grace. Abundant grace. Abounding grace. Ever-increasing Grace. If you're honest this morning, and I hope you are, you probably see yourself in some of the thoughts James shared with us today. I see myself in all of them. Selfishness, prayerlessness, wrong motives, divided loyalty. It's in all of us. And perhaps, if you're honest with yourself this morning, you know that there's absolutely nothing in you capable of fixing a single one of them. But here's the good news. God can and will fix every one of them for you. He'll fix every one of them. The bad news the Bible shares with us always boils down to the same thing, that we are sinners and unable to save ourselves. And that's all James is really saying. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We say it all the time. We have sinned. We do sin. We will sin until Jesus calls us out of this world and into his presence. I remember an old deacon friend who used to stand up in a church we used to attend. And every single prayer, he would start exactly the same way. He would say, God, I confess that there is nothing good in me. And he had it right. We are selfish and we are prayerless and we are filled with wrong motives and we are uh, struggling with divided loyalties. We are, in our natural state, enemies of God. But praise God, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. 
Paul said it like this, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What you and I cannot fix, the grace of God can. His grace, undeserved, unmerited favor, <laughs> fixes it all. And all we have to do is just simply reach out and accept that wonderful gift of God's grace. Terry Tasker is a friend of mine. Some of you in the room know Terry Tasker. Terry Tasker one time wrote a song about the effects of sin in our life. And uh, in that particular song, I've always remembered this illustration that came out of that song. He pictured the effects of sin the way you would toss a pebble into a pond. And the rings from the pebble just went out and out and out and out. And in describing the effects of sin, he said it goes on and on. And on and on. And on and on and on. And isn't that true? Selfishness and prayerlessness and wrong motives and divided loyalties, these things seem to be never-ending conflicts within our own hearts. And they spill out and they contribute to seemingly unending battles and wars in our relationships, in our churches. Oh, but there's an answer. It's a wonderful answer. And that's that he gives more grace. Never-ending grace. Ever-increasing grace. The grace that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So I leave you with a question this morning. Have you received that gift of God's grace? If not, he's offering it today. It will be yours forever if you will but reach out right now and take it as he holds it out to you.